Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Cancer Support Community is a global nonprofit network of 175 locations, including Cancer Support Community and Gildas Club Centers and hospital and healthcare partnerships. These locations, along with the toll-free helpline, digital services, and educational materials, provide $50 million in free support services to patients and families every year. I always enjoy having uh, doctors on the show and learning from them how patients can have the best possible relationship with their medical team and how they can effectively communicate their preferences and their priorities. I also love getting a better understanding of doctors' challenges and that that work environment can be intense. Uh, Today we're going to spend some time with Dr. Joseph Stern, who wrote an extraordinarily candid essay in the New York Times titled, Grief as My Guide, How My Sister Made Me a Better Doctor. In that piece, he shares his journey from neurosurgeon to caregiver and then back to neurosurgeon again. The essay's raw honesty is deeply moving. And I just knew we had to get Dr. Stern on the show and find out more about his uh, experience. So before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Stern. Uh, as I mentioned, he's a neurosurgeon. He's the partner in uh, a partner in Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, the largest neurosurgical group practice in the country. He practices general adult neurosurgery at Moses H. Cone Hospital, the flagship hospital of Cone Health in Greensboro, North Carolina, and is a co-director of the Cone Health Brain Tumor Program. He specializes in brain tumor surgery, stereotactic radio surgery, and spinal surgery, as well as functional neurosurgery, deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease and tremor. Dr. Stern is a member of the American Association of Neurosurgeons, the College of Neurosurgeons, and a fellow at the American College of Surgeons. Since his younger sister Victoria's cancer diagnosis, Dr. Stern has been exploring the impact her illness had on him, as well as the personal experiences of physicians going through similarly disruptive losses. Uh, Dr. Stern has become an advocate for greater compassion and empathy in the way doctors treat their patients and each other, and he's determined to improve healthcare delivery uh, to achieve these goals. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stern. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Stern, was it your childhood dream uh, to become a doctor? Were you one of those kids walking around trying to listen to people's hearts, um, you know, with a with a with a tube out of your your uh, mom's drawer or something? <laughs> Well, I I wasn't really, I um, actually spent a fair amount of my childhood uh, growing up in London, England, and there's a lot of science education, so I got kind of hooked on the sciences um, Mm. when I was uh, over there. Actually, my sister became uh, inspired by acting uh, at that same period. Uh, So I've always been interested in the sciences, and I think that kind of led me toward medicine. Mm. And then specifically, what led you to neurosurgery, what was exciting to you about that specialty? I think it's the seat of the soul. I was absolutely fascinated by the uh, brain and how we're wired and how we work and how we think, and, and I, I, was, I was drawn to it. I initially didn't think I wanted to do surgery at all, but then in medical school, I discovered that it was absolutely fascinating. Wow. So 
Dr. Stern, you've described yourself uh, as an introvert and your younger sister as an extrovert. Can you tell us more uh, about Victoria? Did your differences uh, bring you together, push you apart? Tell us a little bit about your, your childhood and growing up together. So she was uh, 18 months younger than me and was the life of the party, was not uh, afraid of anybody or anything. Uh, And so she kind of led me around and sort of broke down barriers for me. So I found her inspiring in that way. Uh, She was always on my heels, and so that was a little bit challenging at times, too. Um, But uh, she was really a talented actress. uh, And in high school, we were in a play together. I actually broke down and decided I would try to do something in theater. And I was a courtier in a, in a Shakespearean play with one line, which I uh, variably did well or, or not well. And she was the, the star of the show. So that was kind of the way it was. Do you remember what, what play it was and what your line was, Dr. Stern? As you like it, I don't remember what the line was. <laughs> I, know it was I know it convinced me that I, I had no future in the theater. So, so she... So she Good she kind of um, inspired me um, to I guess go out of my uh, comfort um, and and uh, try try different things try new things um, so I did find her uh, inspiring in that way. Mm, wonderful, um, Dr. Stern, uh, can you take us back to your sister's uh, cancer diagnosis? Can you tell us about um, what her diagnosis was and and then the prognosis and and kind of the the treatment plan? Bring us back to that time. So uh, she she lived, I live in North Carolina. She lived in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, She was in Santa Monica. And uh, around November of 2014, she developed a flu-like illness that just wouldn't go away. And she started feeling really crummy and started running uh, higher fevers. And so she went to the emergency room and they did a white blood count, uh, which showed that she had a white blood count in the 30,000 range, which is very high. And she was soon thereafter uh, diagnosed with AML or acute myeloid leukemia. Her uh, oncologist, hematologist, uh, Dr. Sean Fisher, is in Santa Monica, and he was wonderful, very availing of himself and, and connected with uh, me and, and tried. I became, quickly became an interpreter of her medical condition, medical situation. But uh, right from the outset, her diagnosis was pretty dismal. Um, she had what is the, the genetic mutation of that specific illness she had was um, uh, what's called monosomy 7, which means she's lost a, a complete copy of the seventh chromosome. And the reason that's important is that carries a very um, poor prognosis. So it's one of the more difficult to treat of that type of illness. Um, so when I talked to Dr. Fisher, he he told me after he told me the diagnosis and what the um, pathology was, he said, don't go on the internet and don't Google it. So, of course, I immediately went and Googled it and <laughs> kind of looked it up. Because I didn't, you know, even though I'm a doctor, I don't know that much sure. about leukemia. Um, but it carried with it a 6% five-year survival, which is just pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, and the only, it rapidly became clear that the only way she was going to beat the cancer was uh, to have a bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. And so after some initial uh, chemotherapy, she was transferred to City of Hope, uh, where she underwent a bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you said, Dr. Stern, that um, when she was diagnosed in 2014, she was living on um, the West Coast and you on the East Coast. And at her request, you traveled out there um, uh, uh, to be by her side. So, 
so tell us a little bit about your relationship at that time. Were you, did you think you were being uh, called out because you guys were very close and she wanted you by her side? Did you think you were being called out because your medical background could be helpful in the situation to be that sort of, um, you know, I- 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 interpreter? What were you envisioning your, your role your role would be in making that journey, that initial journey? I think I think she really uh, needed some support and and um, but she had some pretty clear uh, things that she made she made quite clear to me from the outset. One is that she didn't really want to talk about dying. She didn't want to talk about the risk of of not making it. Her goal was to use the information and um, create a positive environment for her to get better and to succeed and 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 beat the illness. Um, I think that I was able to interpret a lot of. Uh, medical facts to her, and I, initially we had a lot of contact by um, texting pretty much every day, many times a day, where she would ask me questions about what was going on. I also think that she was comfortable with the idea that I I was comfortable in the hospital and I was comfortable around sick people, and so I think she felt that it would be okay, that I would be a reliable uh, person to be, you know, to mm-hmm. have at her side. Um, mm-hmm. Her oncologist said that uh, the best time to go out would be the conditioning chemotherapy before um, the bone marrow transplant, and then to come back out after the bone marrow transplant. So I sent I spent a week um, before the bone marrow transplant, and then a week afterwards with her. Mm-hmm. I just want to read from your New York Times essay, Dr. Stern. Uh, this quote kind of jumped out at me. You say, "quote I felt my sister's frustration and anguish as we waited hours for doctors and consultants to come by." answer our questions. Stripped of my physician's status, I was aware of the consuming and unrelenting fear that patients carry with them and cannot shake. I was no longer the doctor dropping in on rounds, calling the shots. Um, we've, we've got a couple minutes until our, uh, our first break here, Dr. Stern, but just to reinterpret that, uh, that, that for me, because that sounds like you were, you know, you were really on the other side of this, uh, of this scenario and it became eye-opening in a way that maybe you didn't really anticipate. That's 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 entirely true. I felt um, really shocked by what it suddenly felt um, to be a patient or to be in the in the shoes of a patient. We had a long time of trying to uh, come up with a donor. Eventually, her son uh, Nick became her donor, but for a long time, none of neither my other sister Caroline nor myself were good matches, and so there was mm-hmm. just an awful lot of waiting time. And I, I just suddenly realized, I, I kind of liken the transformation that I've gone through personally from, to, from seeing in black and white to suddenly seeing in color. It suddenly dawned on me what patients and families go through. And it's strange that even though, even though I knew that I was you know, heavily invested in patient care and a compassionate person, it just kind of floored me how it is really different when you're on the receiving end. Just another another quick quote from your piece. Uh, you say, Victoria gave me courage, which was strange because I thought I was there to give her courage. Just comment on that quote, and then we're going to go to our uh, go to our first break here, Doctor Stern. So my sister was always courageous. She was always she would face things head on, and I found in her this source of uh, power that I never really knew she had, and and. I was afraid when I went and, you know, I didn't know that I'd be able to make it as her, you know, caregiver. I didn't know if I, I felt kind of guilty because I hadn't, we really had sort of lost touch, uh, mm-hmm. weren't quite as intimately connected as we wished we had, or I wished I had been. 
But when I went in and I saw her and I just saw how um, powerful she was and how um, utterly uh, courageous she was, it, it, it rubbed off on me. So it was kind of the opposite. I thought I was going to have to go and support her, and she ended up giving me a lot of strength. And that was um, something that was completely, sounds like completely unexpected. Think, I didn't think it would occur. The other thing I saw in yeah. her, which was absolutely shocked me, was the level of gratitude that she had and also how mm-hmm. decent and nice and um, supportive of other people and other patients uh, and mm-hmm. the staff she was. So that inspired yeah. me, too. Yeah, I, I did. I, I did love those notes as well about how she knew all the staff and knew their names and knew their kids' names and knew, knew about their commutes and all of those things that, that, uh, that, that come along with that. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking with... Uh, with Dr. Joseph Stern, he's a, um, a neurosurgeon, and we're talking about uh, a piece that recently appeared in the New York Times, Grief is My Guide, How My Sister Made Me uh, a Better Doctor, and, how, and, and about his experience as a caregiver for his sister uh, when she was fighting cancer. Um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We have a lot uh, more to discuss with uh, Dr. Joseph Stern. We're just going to take a quick break here, but don't go away. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, Azi, and Gilead Sciences. Uh, we also want to thank uh, our supporters who are helping to make the show possible at Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharmacyclics, Janssen, and Insight. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. With us today is neurosurgeon Dr. Joseph Stern. Uh, after his sister's uh, sister Victoria's diagnosis of acute leukemia, an unsuccessful bone marrow transplant, and later her death, Dr. Stern began to explore the impact her illness had on him. He has become an outspoken advocate for greater compassion and empathy in healthcare, writing the New York Times essay that I mentioned earlier, as well as penning the essay, My Continuing Medical Education, The Power of Human Touch in the International Journal for Human Caring. He's also given presentations at the University of Michigan's Department of Neurology, the Prescani Annual Meeting, and the Archdiocese of Boston Annual Palliative Care Colloquium. Um, Dr. Stern, since your sister's passing and reflecting about your experience, you have talked about the missed opportunities surrounding conversations about death, conversations between patient and doctor, um, conversations between patients and their loved ones. Um, what do you, did you experience personally with your sister that caused you to rethink how, how to address a dire or, or a terminal illness, you know, both personally and, you know, and professionally? Talk to us about that enlightenment. Well, the one thing that um, my sister didn't want to do was to talk about dying. She was a, had the belief that if she entertained that thought that that would be what would happen. And so I couldn't really, I didn't really agree with that, but I had to respect that. But it made it difficult to really connect and really have a a moment to discuss, well, the likelihood it really is that you're going to die. You know, you have a 94% chance at the time of diagnosis of dying. And because she put up this wall, she wasn't really willing to discuss it. Mm. She never really had a chance to say goodbye to her family, uh, and she never really had a chance to to prepare her children. I think that partly it's a um, question of, you know, she just couldn't even bear the thought that she wouldn't be there for her children, but because she never said goodbye, they never got a chance for a closure, and I think that's really mm-hmm. unfortunate, and I wish that that had not been the case. So I, I feel that uh, also when she... Uh, when her bone marrow transplant was clearly not working, what happened was her platelet count started to drop. The um, the treating doctors didn't really talk to her about the the likelihood that she would die or that the things weren't working or going her way, and they substituted more chemotherapy that really wasn't doing any good. And so I feel like that was another missed opportunity. And then when I reflect on my own practice and my own um, training, I realize that when I feel uncomfortable about talking about death, that's kind of when I actually need to lean in and do it. Uh, and that you have to face those fears because if you push them away, maybe in the short term, it, if it, it protects you, but in the long term, it certainly doesn't help the patient. And it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't help you as a person or as a doctor either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we certainly know that having an end of life discussion is, 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 is difficult. I mean, there's no, no two ways about it. But we see all the time both patients and healthcare professionals struggle with the reality that the medical treatments have failed or that the patient maybe is ready to, 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 to take a less 
uh, aggressive um, uh, approach. I sometimes I hear patients say, "I'm not giving up. I'm just sort of letting go," you know, and that feels different in my mind. And I don't want my family to think I'm giving up. But, you know, given your experience as both doctor and caregiver, what do you? What advice do you have for for professionals, for patients, to help them sort of create a space to have those difficult conversations? You know, how do you? How, how would you sort of guide or advise people to open that door? Well, first of all, first of all, I guess I'd answer this by a, a comparison with a um, a very dear friend of ours who was the, who just recently died from pancreatic cancer, and she uh, her name is Sue, and she was able to face this head on. Um, I think you know her husband was a, a physician, so he had some background, but they they understood what was involved, and they said we're going to accept treatment, we're going to try to get through this, but we're also going to agree when it's time to stop. And she was so gracious in terms of inviting people in, talking with, I talked with her shortly before her her death about what it's like to die. And she was just very open. And I saw that that had a tremendously uh, positive uh, impact for her children and uh, and her grandchildren. So she was older than my sister. But Mm -hmm. uh, by giving herself permission to have those discussions and and being willing to invite other people in kind of created a safe way to address those. She said, when, when I, we came over to her house, she said, well, I'm going to take on the elephant in the room right away and talk about my illness. And then after she did and she answered our questions, we went on to have a, a fabulous conversation about all kinds of other great things, mm-hmm. but she was willing to face those uh, things. And I think that's what it takes. Is it takes the doctor being willing to have that conversation. It takes the patient being willing to, to address it. So, let you, 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 yeah, you touched a little bit, Dr. Stern, on your training and going back to sort of your medical education, m- medical school. Um, you know, doctors are, doctors are trained to treat people. Doctors are trained to cure people, make people feel better, right? So, so you know, first of all, maybe in some sense it feels counter to your training or what you signed up for. Um, and then also, you know, is there actual training in medical school to have these end-of-life conversations with people? Well, I think I think that's an evolving area, and I honestly think that it's better than it was when I was being trained. When I was being mm-hmm. trained, that really wasn't a thing that we did. Now there's, uh, you know, advanced directives and there's a lot of discussion about this, but I think it could be done a lot better. Uh, I also think that one of the things that we do as physicians or one of the things I realized, and I think uh, through my experience with Victoria, I saw that I wear a suit of emotional armor, so I'm kind of protected Mm -hmm. and I protect myself. Um, And in the experience of her illness, that armor was pierced, and I, I ceased to be able to kind of to wall these things off. But I think there's an awful lot of modeling in terms of uh, education and, you know, through internship and residency and um, cl- creating clinical distance that makes people uncomfortable opening up to these experiences, including one of these uh, about, you know, talking about dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Dr. Stern, in thinking about your journey, what you call a, a personal transformation, I was reminded of a quote by an author and a lecturer, Joseph Campbell. He said, quote, when we quit thinking primarily about ourselves and our own self-preservation, we undergo a truly heroic transformation uh, of consciousness. But, you know, I also thought about and, and, and looked into some of these statistics about burnout 
and, and depression some doctors experience. You know, according to Medscape's 2018 Physician Lifestyle Report, 42% of U.S. physicians report uh, feeling burned out, while 15% acknowledge experience some kind of depression. Um, and in oncology, the burnout rate was 39% with 13% um, experiencing depression uh, depression and burnout. And I know in some of those more intensive specialty care areas like uh, you know, uh, like cancer, things can be um, can be sometimes intense. So you talk about that. You talked about that emotional armor um, that you sort of put up to 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 protect yourself. And it, I would imagine a lot of doctors, um, you know, doctors do that to 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 protect themselves. But how how did you? I mean, it took this personal experience for you to create this transformation and come, you know, sort of be thinking differently. Um, about this, but not every doctor's not every doctor's going to have that. So, so what's the solution? Does is the patient responsible for this conversation and, and and bringing the conversation up? Do we need to do continue to do a better job, as you said, sort of improving the training and you know in medical school? Where where do we go from here? Well, I think that um, when I was being trained, it seemed that my priorities were perfection uh, and. Uh, the goal of having perfect surgery, uh, perfectly removing the tumor from the patient's head. There was was an effort to, the end result of that was actually dehumanizing and objectifying the patient. And so I'm starting to realize that a lot of what patients want is not that perfection. They want connection and they want empathy and they want a sense that they matter. Uh, And I also feel that for the physician to go down that road and open up to their patient, and again, this is a, this is a, this is a difficult line to walk, you know, because you want the neurosurgeon who's going to be um, cool and dispassionate and able to do surgery and able to do you know a great job. At the same time, you need that connection with your physician. So I feel that a lot of emphasis has to be made in terms of training. I also think that. One of the things I did, I wrote a memoir about my sister, um, and one of the things I did was I interviewed a lot of physicians. We tend to experience these losses in isolation. We don't connect with each other. We don't support each other, and we don't have um, systems or health systems that really integrate these experiences and encourage people to go through them. We, We expect people to wall them off. And I think one of the reasons that people get burned out is they try to dull themselves down or they push these experiences away. You know, if I'm in a busy clinic and I've got 20 or 30 patients to see and this person has a, is having a very sad experience, I can either choose to connect with that patient or I can say, well, you know, I've got to do my charting and I've got to do my tasks and become very task-oriented, and you shut that down. Well, every time you shut that down, it's, it's all, it all, I began to realize it was almost as if a little part of myself died, and I couldn't allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. But then when you start to think in terms of the patient or you think from the patient's point of view, it is, it is overwhelming. You start to recognize that there's an awful lot of things that we need to do better and, and change how we interact with each other. One of the things I think is really helpful is in our brain tumor program, we've integrated a palliative care nurse practitioner into our program. She's able, we work more as a team than as an individual. Yeah. 
and and trying to really um, serve the patient's needs and understand yeah. them better. Yeah, I want to. We're going to take a quick break here, Doctor Stern, but I want to jump into a little bit of that conversation about palliative care because I think there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about what palliative care is, and it's a, it's important to make some distinctions. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking with uh, Doctor Joseph Stern and his role moving from physician to caregiver. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. More can be done for the mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, and partners facing the unique challenges of this advanced disease. And every moment counts. While there has been progress made over the last few years in distinguishing MBC and bringing forward new treatment options, there is still more to be done to truly support the women and men living with this disease every day so they can continue to be there for family and friends. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease because together we know we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Pharma, Taiho Oncology, and Takeda Oncology. We're having an incredibly insightful and thoughtful conversation with Dr. Joseph Stern. Dr. Stern is a neurosurgeon practicing in North Carolina, where he is a partner in Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates. He practices general adult neurosurgery at Moses H. Cone Hospital and is a co-director of the Cone Health Brain Tumor Program. Um, I, I want to go back uh, to the top. One of the topics we touched on at the end of the last segment, Doctor Stern, and that is around um, palliative care. And I think that um, certain, certainly, it's a term in in, in in oncology 
that we're hearing a lot, but I do see a lot of people really back away or shy away from it because they think that palliative care means hospice. They think that palliative care means um, we've suddenly pivoted to end of life, no more treatment, um, and those um, myths are not true. So, Dr. Stern, can you walk our listeners through the difference between palliative care and hospice care and talk a little bit more about how you've integrated palliative care in your practice and why you've become such an advocate for it? So um, palliative care means basically providing comfort and support, and hospice care is defined as an, it's an insurance-based benefit that's basically usually in the home. Palliative care is oftentimes in the hospital or a clinic setting, and hospice care is within six months of expected uh, end of life. And so the treatments are really quite different. And I think one of the things that people need to understand about palliative care is you can have palliative care and still undergo aggressive treatment. If you're going to hospice care, then you are deciding that you're going to back away from curative treatments, but you can still undergo palliative treatments. Basically, you're not going to cure the cancer, but you're going to debulk a tumor or, or end or decrease uh, pain or suffering. Uh, but palliative care really can be integrated a lot earlier in the course of an illness. And uh, both with my sister's experience, it was eye-opening. It was, it was also um, about a year and a half after my sister died, her husband, who was the sole caregiver for both of their uh, sons, had a subarachnoid hemorrhage and a ruptured aneurysm and ended up in a coma in the ICU in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And we ended up having to decide on um, withdrawal of, of support when he didn't get better. And so I suddenly found myself as a neurosurgeon in the receiving end of neurosurgical care, watching it unfold. And that was truly eye-opening for me as well in terms of palliative care because I saw that palliative care could have been used a lot earlier in his treatment. It was important in terms of helping his uh, sons, and it was important in terms of helping the family. He was in a coma the entire time, so he was not really able to uh, speak or or respond. Um, But in the end, palliative care was only brought in after uh, the decision had been made to terminate care or to withdraw care. And so it went from something that would have been really helpful all the way along and helping us shape our questions, getting advice, getting support, understanding the issues of the patient and the family. You know, one of the things that I was brought very clear to me with my sister is that a lot of times we don't really understand who our patients are. We don't understand what, what motivates them, what their family is. You know, by the time they're in the hospital, they're in a bed with monitors in their head in a gown, and they've been stripped of what defines them as an individual. So being able to integrate the patient issues, the family issues, and understand them as you go is extraordinarily helpful. And I think one of the things that's interesting about about palliative care is when you talk about burnout, palliative care doctors are some of the least burned out medical professionals around. So it's not the exposure to death. It's the exposure to the defenses or not, or the unwillingness to go there or the discomfort. But if you're open to, you know, discussing it, I think it's enormously helpful for patients and families. And I, uh, I have found in my practice in the, our brain tumor program, having the palliative care 
nurse practitioner, I have learned, I used to think I understood a lot about patients, but then when I talk to her after she's met with them and discuss what's going on and what the backstory is, it's, it's, it's again, extremely illuminating, and it makes it much, uh, much easier to provide really good, integrated, holistic care. Hmm. Hmm. Um. So I want you to talk a little bit more about that. I just want to dig a little deeper, Dr. Stern, on that with these new insights that you've gained and, and having been really bedside with your, your sister and even with your, with your, with your brother-in-law. Um, talk to us about really what you decided you were going to do differently when interacting um, with your patients. I mean, it was a you know, real sort of level of, of, of heightened consciousness ar- around all of this. So, so after this experience, when you really would go back into patients, like what was, what was going through your mind? What, were you, what was the narrative in your head? What were you telling yourself? And also, you know, you mentioned something earlier about how you, with your, your medical colleagues, oftentimes become isolated, you know, during times of loss and not a lot of sharing. Did it also affect how you were interacting with your, with your medical colleagues? Well, so when I interviewed a bunch of my colleagues, I discovered that their journeys were not dissimilar to my own and mm-hmm. that the amount that I had learned from going through this personally, I would have found enormously helpful to have had earlier in my career. You know, one of the things I wonder is, would the young neurosurgeon that I was be receptive to these things? But I think uh, laying a framework, laying a, a sense of how to get help of how uh, these issues play out, I think w- would have been very helpful. And a lot of my colleagues have gone through very similar things. So I think in their own ways, they're sort of shaping themselves in response to these stresses rather than kind of meeting them head on and and getting some education in, in terms of these challenges and how to manage them and how to best support patients, how, how, to, how to be a better doctor. So I, I feel that, that if, if that's brought in more intentionally in, in uh, medical training, I think it would be extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Stern, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people involved in cancer care today, we, we, we toss around this term, quote unquote, patient-centered care. And, you know, it can mean different things to different people. It can mean that the patient is the driver of the conversation, or or um, it can mean that we want to make sure the patient voice is represented in all of the places where decisions are being made about the patient. Um, but I, I do, you bring such a unique perspective uh, to this subject as both doctor and, and caregiver. So when you hear that phrase, patient-centered care, I, I want to ask you part one, <laughs> what, what does that mean to you from a very practical level, that, that, that term patient-centered care? And number two, given the way our, our healthcare system is structured in the U.S., um, troubled, fragmented, um, what do you think are some of the challenges or barriers to achieving a true patient-centered healthcare system? I know those are big questions, but just love to get your perspective on that. Well, one of the things that I've been striving for and I'm uh, in my talks and in the book that I've written is that it care absolutely has to be patient centered. You have to say as the physician, you have to be the advocate for the patient. You have to say is, you know, we're all going to be patients at some point. So, is the care that I'm giving to this patient the same care I would wish to receive? And if not, why not? And how do we change things? How do we make them uh, improve them? You know, would we recommend I'm fascinated by the idea that doctors choose different treatments than they recommend to patients. And I think that's kind of crazy. Why is that? (laughs) Where is the disconnect between what the physician thinks and decides and what patients are being uh, advised to have? In our uh, cancer center, we had um, 
a very awkward um, uh, in, uh, registration process where, and this actually, my, my father-in-law has got multiple myeloma, so he goes uh, regularly for treatment. And he said, every time I go to the health center, I have to register. And every time I register, I have to go through this exhaustive questionnaire. And then he went to another center where they took his ID card, swiped it, and they were done. And I look and I go, there's no reason that it should be difficult to get care. The assumption mm-hmm. should not be made, oh, well, your insurance has changed and we have to update everything. And there's sort of fear-based uh, accountability. You know, I, I've got to make sure that I get all the questions answered because I can't have that patient come in without uh, being properly registered. But I look and I go, flip it on its head. The patient is is the person who should be driving things. And we should all be working toward that common goal of giving the very best possible care to the patient and thinking of that patient as if it were ourselves or our loved one, and then starting to look and and having conversations about, well, how can we knock down barriers? You know, one of the problems with burnout is there's so many different tasks that we have to do. The electronic medical record is a a depersonalizing uh, system. There's so many steps that are now involved, and there's so much uh, paperwork that's done uh, or computer digital work, but it takes us away from the patient. So I feel that a lot of the improvement in healthcare delivery is to recapture the humanity and to recapture the connection between all caregivers, not just physicians, but all caregivers and patients. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a quick minute until our our um, our, our break, Dr. Stern. But I, I sort of I feel like we've got this really broken system, this fragmented system um, that creates this bureaucracy, and people are the doctors are pressed. There's so little time. There's so I mean, are these some of the things that you feel are is the system itself leading to this depersonalization and 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 an inability to deliver patient-centered care? Is it the system itself, the bureaucracy? I think there's so many different factors, but I think that the way out of this is to fundamentally rethink things with a focus on empathy and a focus on connection with patients and to look at the patient and say, and you can break down the silos. Why, are, why am I having uh, arguments with nursing administration or various different factions or silos within a health system when if we really are building it from the patient out and thinking about, well, how can I... When I'm inconveniencing the patient, I need to stop that. How can I change the processes to make it better for the patient? How can the patient's needs be met? If you rehumanize medical care, I think it would be a, a huge service. I also think as we head down this sort of um, uh, artificial intelligence role mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. physicians are interpreting me- uh, computer information, you have to then bring the yeah. patient, you have to bring that humanity yeah. back in to the patient. Yeah. Agree, agree. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We've got more uh, to discuss here with Dr. Joseph Stern. Um, don't go away. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you break away from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Agios, Helsin, and Janssen Oncology. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. I'm thrilled to continue our enlightening and insightful conversation with Dr. Joseph Stern. Dr. Stern is a practicing neurosurgeon and author of the New York Times essay, Grief as My Guide, How My Sister Made Me a Better Doctor. Um, Dr. Stern, the changes you've made in your work as a neurosurgeon and as a really the result of your personal transformation, um, you strongly believe that that those changes and that awareness would benefit benefit the whole you know, medical community. And I want to go back for a minute to this idea of, you know, starting in, starting in, in, in medical school. Um, you told us a little bit about how you were trained. You think that we're making some um, improvements um, in how we are training medical students uh, today. But if you were, if you were, uh, if you were in charge, you were the king. You had a magic wand. Um, what would that look like in medical school uh, for these medical students? How, how would you sort of change the curriculum or the training or the exposure that they have to make them more compassionate and and and, and empathetic and and to open their eyes to these issues? Well, there's a, an effort in uh, medical school that I trained at the University of Michigan, looking at 
bringing the healing arts in, looking at arts and getting people connected to uh, humanities. Some of the uh, students are very science-oriented, have never taken or experienced much in the way of humanities. So connecting them to their emotional selves, also giving people permission that that's important, that that's something that uh, matters in terms of interacting with a patient. One of the things I think uh, we do poorly in medical training is uh, medicine is interview-based, but we're not trained to do this well. Uh, mm. And we're not trained to manage the powerful emotions we encounter on a daily basis. So I think there are a lot of ways that that can change and needs to change. And one of the things that I'm becoming passionate about is is being a, is is trying to help facilitate that change. Yeah, and I guess also you know finding a, you know creating part of a curriculum that you know addresses these things. You can be good at the at the science. You can be good at the math. You can have a good memory. You can, but um, you know it's a whole different level of training to uh, to face these kinds of issues. Do you think that um, do you think that doctors feel some sense of failure when their when their patient dies or when there are no more options or treatment or again I mean as I said earlier doctors are trained to to help people to cure people right to make people better. Um, do you feel like there's some maybe personal sense of, 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 of failure when they have those patients who, where there are no more treatment options? So I think we deal with failure all the time, and I think that is depressing, and, um, and I think that really, it really hurts, and, and you don't want to admit it sometimes or you want to push it away, but I think that um, whatever you're feeling is a failure, that patient's family is feeling it far far more. Um, and so all of these instances are, are actually opportunities to connect and to, and to express that compassion. And the way, you know, when I, when the, initially when the emotional armor was pierced, I, I didn't feel I had any control over that. Now, as I'm more consciously doing this, it feels, not only does it feel right, it actually has surprisingly made me feel stronger and better at, at what I do. You know, initially I didn't think it was okay to cry in front of a patient or patient's family. And uh, one time, uh, not that long ago, I reached out and gave a mother a hug um, when her son was dying. And it really, um, I, I felt much stronger and better. And I, I, the person that I was before, what had happened with my sister, I wouldn't have done that. Wow. Wow. That's really powerful. Um, we're getting towards the end of our show, but I I know you had said that you believe that, that connection is power, connection with the patient, uh, connection with a colleague. Um, and you, you, you know, you're sort of telling us a little bit about the, uh, about your sort of new mission <laughs> to make those kinds of connections and the transformation that you went through, um, you know, with the with with the loss, um, you know, with the loss of your sister. But tell us, just tell us a little bit more about the importance of that that connection and 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 just connecting with patients on a human level and seeing the family around and understanding the impact of these tough decisions. Well, if if you don't have that connection, you're really not um, providing the full service that needs to be provided as a doctor. So when you, when you do connect, when you understand the person's history, suddenly a lot of decisions that patients make uh, suddenly make sense. You know, with our palliative care nurse, Mary um, LaRoche, she, was, she found out things about patients that I had no idea. There was this one guy, I didn't understand why he was refusing treatment or he was refusing to go back to work, but it turned out that he owed child support and 
he thought he would go to jail, even though he had mm-hmm. cancer, if he didn't give that um, give that. Uh, continue to work. So I never would have found that out had I not had someone who was in a less pressured situation who could talk specifically. I think a lot of times patients are afraid to talk to the doctors and they're afraid to um, to admit what's going on or that they don't understand something or that they have questions. And the other thing is I think that the way we deliver information is very difficult. There's so much information that I'm trying to handle, both interpreting tests and giving uh, test results and data to patients. It's very difficult at that same setting to turn around and say, oh, now tell me about what you're feeling. You know, it's, there's, so we have, to, we have to figure out ways to do this in a more effective way. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, um, one of the things we do with patients at the cancer support community is help them get ready for an appointment with a doctor. And a lot of times the patients will say exactly what you're describing. Oh, I think this is a stupid question. I don't think I should ask my doctor this question. And we say, no, 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 no. That's a, that's a great question, you know. And, and, and what we try to do is help them, help them understand that the, that the appointment is their appointment, right? And that their question list is their agenda that they've set for the appointment and that those are very appropriate um, questions for them to, you know, kind of bring forward um, to the doctor. So we're also looking for those kinds of tools that we can help to kind of open up the conversation and, and, and use that as a vehicle to help the doctor understand really what's on the, um, you know, on the patient's mind. So, you know, I think that we're right there with you in terms of trying to uh, kind of shift that conversation a little bit and make it more of a, of a partnership and, and the power of that, um, the power of that connection. Um, Dr. Stern, I can't believe we're uh, so much more I want to talk about with you, um, but we are getting, uh, uh, getting to the uh, end of our show. If you could just take a quick, uh, a quick uh, 30 seconds to give uh, advice to our, our listeners if they are a caregiver or, 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 or a patient advice, uh, tips for them on having establishing good communication and having that more openness with their doctor. Well, I think that um, empathy is the key to a, a meaningful interaction with a patient, and I liken it to if I'm going into the exam room, I've got to go I knock on the door, I go in the room, I've got to open another door, which is the door to myself, but also the door to the, with the patient in terms of that connection. If you don't feel that connection, that's a problem. Always bring someone to your appointment because you have to have another set of ears. And what mm-hmm. you said, I think, is very important. It's your appointment. It's not the doctor's appointment. I've got some yep. stuff that I want to get uh, through, but I don't yep. want to dominate that. And if I'm talking all the time and not listening, then I'm not really uh, helping solve your concerns or questions. And I also think what you said is true. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Very good practical advice for our listeners today. Uh, Dr. Stern, I want to thank you for joining us on the show to to share your very powerful uh, story and and, and to applaud you for getting the word out uh, to others about your own experience. Um, I just also want to remind folks that uh, at the Cancer Support Community, we have a host of free services for patients and families. We have beautiful centers around the country. We have a helpline. If you want to grab a pen, you can call us at 888-793-9355. Or you can visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org to learn about all of the wonderful free services um, that we have available for people with all cancers at any stage of disease and for their family members and loved ones. I'm Kim Tabledo. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. 